This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, adultery, witchcraft, pirates, or as Shakespeare liked to call it, Henry VI, Part 2. Welcome, Queen Margaret. I can express no kinder sign of love than this kind kiss. I depart from thee, I cannot live. Let me stay, befall what may befall, to have thee with thy lips to stop my mouth. Come you, my lord, to see my open shame. Now thou dost penance too. It shall be treason for any that calls me other than Lord Mortimer. Knock him down there! All right, as always, I'm going to get you up to speed with the story. I know you're busy, so I don't want to take too much of your time. This is Henry VI, Part 2, in one minute. Let's start the timer. Here we go. All is still rotten in the state of England. Henry has married Margaret, a princess of France, but she is secretly having an affair with the Duke of Suffolk. Meanwhile, the Duke of York is scheming to get the crown, believing himself to be the rightful heir. And Eleanor, the wife of the Lord Protector, has hired a pair of sorcerers to help her husband gain the crown for himself. After being betrayed, Eleanor is exiled and the Lord Protector is deposed. When the Lord Protector is murdered, Suffolk is blamed and exiled, crushing Margaret, who sees herself suddenly losing influence on the king. Suffolk is murdered by pirates, while the Duke of York sets up a ruffian named Jack Cade to stir up a rebellion. Cade is defeated, and the Duke of York openly claims his right to the crown. Everyone fights, some of Henry VI's nobles die, including the Duke of Somerset, who is killed at the hands of one of the Duke of York's sons, a certain lord with a hunchback and a crippled arm, the future Richard III. Henry VI and Margaret flee, and with the country in open rebellion, the curtain falls. While Henry VI Part II is an improvement on its predecessor, Shakespeare still wasn't able to conquer the problem he encountered in Henry VI Part I. That play had no hero, and its sequel is no different. It's every bit an ensemble piece, but not all the characters have a satisfying dramatic arc, except for Jack Cade, whose rebellion fittingly tries to steal the story away from everyone else. There's a whiff of the experimental here, for Shakespeare was toying with some of the ideas he would perfect when he finally wrote Henry IV and Henry V. In both those cases, Shakespeare juxtaposed the adventures of kings with the adventures of the commoners. Henry V goes to France, but so does Pistol, Bardolf, and Nim. Henry VI Part II shows the beginning of this idea, and for that, it deserves a place in the Shakespearean scholar's heart. Whether it deserves a place on the stage is another question altogether. Most people who choose to produce the Henry VI trilogy will cut down the first play so they can enjoy the court intrigues of the second. Poor Jack Cade sometimes gets cut altogether. You can hardly blame people for wanting to see more of Queen Margaret, who is Lady Macbeth if Lady Macbeth had married the king instead of one of his generals. She's an ambitious schemer who plots to eliminate threats to her hold over the king with the same Machiavellian skill that Richard III will use when he finally hobbles onto the stage. Is it any wonder that Richard III and Margaret will loathe each other with such ferocity? In another world, they would have been the perfect couple, and it is only history's whim, or perhaps Shakespeare's, that has them pin different colored roses to their lapels. Another woman rises at once to challenge Margaret, and she is quickly cut down. This is Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester, wife of Duke Humphrey, the Lord Protector. Humphrey has the king's ear, and Eleanor is hopeful he can someday have the crown too. Her reason is a dream she had in which the new queen knelt down to her. 
The scene bears similarities to the one where Lady Macbeth tilts her husband toward murder, but Eleanor does not have the same talent for manipulation, and Humphrey, loyal dog that he is, chides her at once. Art thou not second woman in the realm, and the protector's wife beloved of him? Hast thou not worldly pleasure at command above the reach or compass of thy thought, and wilt thou still be hammering treachery? to tumble down thy husband and thyself from top of honor to disgrace his feet now away from me and let me hear no more. Comparing Eleanor to Queen Margaret is sort of like comparing a grapefruit to a three-course feast. Only one of them can really sustain an appetite. Eleanor relies on dreams and witches to get what she wants, but Margaret is much more realistic. Juxtaposed with Eleanor's paltry attempts to push her husband towards rebellion is Margaret's seduction of the Duke of Suffolk. Indeed, the scenes follow each other, allowing audiences to see both a bad schemer and a good one. Rather than relying on the supernatural, Margaret engenders pity and sympathy, first by railing against Humphrey, and then by attacking his wife. But she also appeals to Suffolk's ego. Years later, Lady Macbeth will call Macbeth a coward when he wavers on their plot, and here, Margaret uses a similar tactic with Suffolk. She confesses that Henry VI, her new husband, cannot compare to Suffolk in manhood or virility. I thought King Henry had resembled thee in courage, courtship, and proportion. But all his mind is bent to holiness. The number Ave Maris on his beads. Margaret also incites Suffolk against Eleanor. The Duchess thinks she can use dreams and prophecy to provoke her husband, but Margaret understands men. By going after Eleanor, she will pit their husbands, or more importantly, their husbands' egos, against one another. Eleanor is to Henry VI Part II what Joan of Arc was to Part I, but Joan was able to use her visions to rally an entire country, while Eleanor can do nothing but assemble a motley band of confederates, one of whom is in the Duke of Suffolk's employ. Now in the last episode, I spoke of how Shakespeare was always careful when presenting representatives of the spiritual world. Joan of Arc is the only one who sees her spirits, leaving us to wonder if they were real or the product of an addled mind. Now while I said in the last episode that it would have been political of Shakespeare to paint Joan of Arc as a lunatic, one only has to look at the rest of the Henriad to see that it is equally possible that Shakespeare's Joan truly was in some demonic thrall. The spirit world plays a large part in these plays, beginning with Joan and ending with the ghosts who torment Richard III. In Henry VI Part II, the conjurer Eleanor hires may be a con artist and the spirit who appears just as an actor in her employ, but it's important to remember that people in Shakespeare's time believe strongly in witchcraft, and there's the pesky fact that the spirit's prophecies all come true. There's also the fact that York and Buckingham, having discovered the seance, burst into the room to arrest everyone, but they make no mention of the spirit, who presumably escaped back across the pale. Prophecy and magic are a large part of the Henry VI plays, and they will also play a huge role in Richard III. He will see ghosts, as I said, and of course he will sow dissent between his brothers by using a prophecy to suggest one will kill the other. Margaret's hold on her husband doesn't quite last. When Humphrey is murdered, Henry VI turns on the Duke of Suffolk, and Margaret finds she cannot quell her husband's rage, not even when she tries to seduce her husband using the same tricks she used on her lover. And hide thy face. I am no loathsome leper. Look on me. What art thou like the adder, waxen death? <laughs> Be poisonous too and kill thy forlorn queen. Is all thy comfort 
shot in Gloucester's tomb. Why then, Dame Margaret was ne'er thy joy. Erect his statue and worship it. Make my image but an alehouse sign. The mystery of Humphrey's murder is uncovered. A little too quickly, but this is a play, so maybe we should let that pass. But then Henry VI does something interesting. He reveals that he has not been the dupe that Margaret took him for. Oh, Henry, let me plead for gentle Suffolk. Ungentle queen, to call him gentle Suffolk. No more, I say, if thou dost plead for him, thou wilt but add increase unto my wrath. Does Henry VI know about Margaret and Suffolk's affair? I think it's likely, and actors would be wise to play it as such, especially when one recalls that later, Margaret will enter with Suffolk's head and openly mourn him in front of her husband. This entire scene where Humphrey is killed and Henry confronts Margaret and the Duke of Suffolk is arrested is one of the strongest in the play, and it allows Henry VI to show that he is not the lickspittle others have taken him for. And when I say others, I mean also the people who have played Henry VI, or at least directed him, in all the years to come. He's often played as a weaker king, and I'm not entirely sure that's the case. To be sure, he doesn't have the conviction of a Henry V, and he's not a strong leader. But I also don't think that he's as weak as people sometimes portray him. Humphrey is his uncle, and raised him since he was young. The sight of him betrayed and murdered gives the actor an opportunity to show a side of the king that we have not seen before. Aside from setting up the supernatural themes that will dominate everything up until the end of Richard III, the episode also sets up Margaret's own downfall. It is Suffolk's confederate who exposes Eleanor's witchcraft. This dooms Humphrey, who is eventually murdered in the tower. Suffolk is blamed and exiled, which hurts Margaret, who loses both her lover and a friend in the court. By trying to eliminate her rivals, Margaret inadvertently eliminates her allies as well. This irony is very pleasing from a theatrical standpoint, and if this was the entire play, I suspect Henry VI Part II would have a much better reputation. Shakespeare should have quit while he was ahead. Unfortunately, he was only in the middle of Act Three. Like a great orchestral piece, there are distinct movements to Henry VI Part II, all of which play out separately and attempt to coalesce in the end. This is Shakespeare's most ambitious work to date, for he doubles down on the notion of incorporating various plot threads. Many scenes in Henry VI Part II feel like they could be part of their own one-act play. The storyline of Margaret, Eleanor, and the death of Humphrey is electric, but its impact is watered down by the interpolations of other episodes. When I gave the one-minute summary, I really just gave you the important points, and I didn't mention these episodes because they really don't have any impact on the larger story. There's the episode of the comic traders Peter and Horner. There's Simcox, the con man who tries to convince the nobles that he's magically regained his sight. And there's a very lengthy scene involving Suffolk when he is captured by pirates and then executed. Now, this last episode was probably political for having shown the adultery between Suffolk and Margaret. It was no doubt prudent of Shakespeare to show the punishment for the crime. The subplot that is actually important is that of the Duke of York, who has been scheming all this time to regain the crown, such that he provokes a fellow named Jack Cade to stir up rebellion. 
Now, the interlude with Jack Cade will take up far too much of the play's fourth act, which is too bad because if it was performed alone, the entire episode would be a great deal of fun. Act 4 is far too late in the day to be introducing new characters, but this is what Shakespeare attempts by switching the scene to Blackheath, where George Beavis and John Holland await Jack Cade, who then arrives with his army of, quote, infinite numbers, end quote. Jack Cade is a unique creation in Shakespeare's early plays, borrowing a page from the Book of Petruchio, even as he anticipates other braggarts like Parolus in All's Well That Ends Well and Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's also worth noting that it is the Jack Cade interpolation which ends up containing one of the most famous lines in all of Shakespeare. When I am king, as king I will be! Good people, there shall be no money. All shall eat and drink on my score. <laughs> and I will apparel them all in one livery that they may agree like brothers. brothers and worship me, their lord. First thing we do is kill all the lawyers. In both the Henry IV plays and Henry V, Shakespeare would weave the scenes of courtly intrigue with those of England's pubs and basements. But this upstairs-downstairs narrative style truly began with Henry VI Part II, albeit in a raw and imperfect state, arriving as it does so late in the play that it feels like a diversion rather than an integral part of the narrative. Nonetheless, as I said, it is a great deal of fun. Jack Cade is an entertaining rogue, and it's satisfying to see him win at least one battle when he and his men put down some of Henry VI's loyal followers. It's easy to understand why most productions either truncate Cade's storyline or erase it altogether, but I'm always a little sad to see it go. Next to Margaret, Cade is the best part of Henry VI Part II. Cade's storyline also has a function. It introduces Lord Clifford, that brave hero who will die a few scenes later. When Cade's storyline is cut entirely, as it was in the BBC 2016 miniseries The Hollow Crown, Clifford appears out of nowhere, and his death has significantly less interest, as does the expansive monologue of Clifford's son when he stumbles upon his father's corpse. Most theatrical editors will delete Jack Cade in favor of the Duke of York, who arrives from Ireland with his army in the fifth act and finally claims his right to the British crown. This scene is also a grand one, with people switching loyalties in the middle of things, and of course we also get the grand entrance of Richard III, the villain everybody was waiting for. Richard's first line is a threatening confrontation with Clifford, and it anticipates the murderous temper that will make him so popular in theaters for hundreds of years. Clifford will eventually die, but not at Richard's hand. Richard's first kill in the Henriad is the Duke of Somerset, but he kills just seconds before the curtain falls. See, Richard appears only at the end of the play, but it is a notable cameo that cannot help but excite us for the two plays that are to come. Just as Shakespeare ended Henry VI Part I with Margaret, who is the central antagonist for much of the second play, here he ends with Richard, who will dominate Henry VI Part III, even as he emerges as the very first great creation in Shakespeare's rapidly expanding roster of characters. The next two plays in the Henriette are the strongest in the whole saga, and with both Richard and Margaret sharing the stage, Shakespeare finally has two grand characters set against a backdrop of even greater drama. As we shall see, this was the magic he has been missing until now, and these are the crucial ingredients to his ever-evolving playwriting skill. Now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about productions you can find so you can watch these plays for yourself and decide whether or not you agree with me. For a complete unabridged version of Henry VI Part II, we turned once again to the BBC, or more specifically to the made-for-television movie the BBC did in 1983. 
again directed by Jane Howell. It is complete, but continues on with the same bizarre visual style that marked Henry VI Part One. The set is a playground, and in many ways the film feels like a recording of a theatrical production, although one that doesn't have an audience. I have issues with this production, though. Jack Cade is not played as the rogue that he is, and Margaret has very little venom in her bite. Instead, I'm actually going to recommend the radio production of the play from the Archangel Complete Shakespeare series. I'll probably mention them a few dozen times between now and episode 38. These are fully dramatized, unabridged recordings, and they're a real blessing for Shakespeare fans. The text is all there, and you can hear the actors while still being free to imagine one or two things for yourself. I'll leave links to that on the show page. But for shorter versions, I'm going to go back to The Age of Kings from 1960 and The Hollow Crown from 2016. Both of these miniseries reduce the events of the play considerably, and as expected, the minor episodes are mostly expunged. Jack Kay doesn't even appear in The Hollow Crown, but this can be forgiven if only because it gives more screen time to Sophie Occhiando, whose Margaret is by far my favorite. She plays Margaret like the Lady Macbeth that she is, and the scenes where she faces off against Eleanor are a real delight to watch. I also like how the episode ends, with the Duke of York coming home to summon his sons and rally them to his cause, and when he calls out for Richard, all we see is a lumbering, hunchback shadow coming towards us just before the scene cuts to black. So once again, I'm going to recommend the 1983 BBC version for the purists, and the Hollow Crown for everyone else. Life's short, and Henry VI Part Two can feel oh so very long. Well that's it for Henry VI Part Two. Next up, we have more murder and bloody rebellion as we hit Henry VI Part Three, and the future Richard III becomes one of Shakespeare's best inventions to date. Subscribe to this podcast, and hey, while you're at it, why not rate it and leave a review in the iTunes store, or elsewhere in the wilds of the internet. Comment on SoundCloud or the show page, which you can find via my website at www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, speaking of my website, you know you can go there to find out more about me and my work, including my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle in a world too small to contain them. Shakespeare is all over this book. Henry V plays a major role, something which I'm going to talk about when we finally get to discussing that play. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. Four plays down, 34 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.